Supercharged with Ali Geary on RTE Radio 1. Hello and welcome to Supercharged with me, Anna Geary. Now we have an important show for you this evening. Just to warn you from the offset, it will be dealing with the issue of self-harm and there will be possible references to suicide. On last Sunday's show, Arlene Bailey shared her story with us and within that she mentioned self-harm. The reality is there has been an astronomical rise in self-harming rates in Ireland in recent years. Like I read an article in the Irish Times recently which described the situation as a hidden epidemic. So on this show, we'll open up a conversation about self-harm. What exactly it encompasses, what are the possible causes and what are the supports available. Also on the show, as next week is Tinnitus Awareness Week, I'm going to chat with some experts about the common condition that is tinnitus and get you some valuable advice. Plus, we'll have my fitness tip of the week and we'll look at some interesting health stories too. If you have any questions for our experts or if you want to get in touch with your comments, you can text them in on 51551 or email at supercharged at rte.ie. Joining me now is Kleena Gannon. Kleena, thank you so much for being here this evening. Tell us about your story. Yeah, so when I was um, in primary school, I started getting bullied quite badly. I had very low self-esteem and so um, it kind of escalated then from there. And at what age were you when you started self-harming? So I started self-harming when I was 13. My parents broke up when I was 13 and then uh, in April the following year, I began self-harming then. And why why did you feel the urge to self-harm? I was dealing with quite a lot of difficult emotions. I mm-hmm. felt really sad and angry a lot of the time. I didn't know who to go to or who to talk to. Mm-hmm. And it was the only kind of way that I could release those emotions and let it out without having to open up. Yeah, I mean, that, that's a lot for any 13-year-old to, to have to deal with. Were you able to confide in anyone at the time? And, and if you did, how did you confide in them? Yeah, so I remember texting my mom to let her know because... I didn't want to have the conversation with her in person. Mm-hmm. It was very, very difficult to discuss and um, I found it very emotional and I didn't want to see her reaction, mm-hmm. which is why I chose to text her then. And then we went and we got other supports in place for me as well. And before we talk about the supports, you know, did the self-harm continue and like, and like what else happened after that? Yeah, so I was still very insecure myself. So the self-harm did continue um, my mom was aware of it and a few teachers in my school knew, but I still couldn't figure out how to guess, how to talk about my emotions mm-hmm. and how to not turn to that coping strategy. Although it's not the healthiest coping strategy, it was still the only thing. It was all that you knew. Yeah. 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 So it was the only thing I could do. And was your mom aware of the full extent of how much you were suffering or was there any catalyst that made her realise that? I don't think she was fully aware. She tried to support me as best as she could, Mm -hmm. but I think there's so little information on it and so little advice and support for parents as well. Mm -hmm. So she didn't know what she could do for me. Um, She tried lots of different things. We tried counselling. But at the same time, when she was there as a parent, it was me getting mad at her and being angry as well because I I didn't know how to get those emotions out and I felt very trapped Mm -hmm. in myself 
And I guess really, like, how did you move forward out of that space then? Um, so when I was 18, that's when I decided to move to Dublin. And that's when I kind of learned how to move out. Now, before that, I had begun counselling with a really good therapist okay. in Kilkenny. And that also helped me as well. And um, I was in a youth group in Kilkenny as well that I joined when I was 15. And I began making friends, which helped improve my mental health and my self-esteem as well. Great. Um, I started to feel liked and loved. And for you then, and moving forward and, and moving to Dublin, how did your life change afterwards? Yeah, so when I moved, I moved up to live with my aunt and it started, It was a really healthy place for me. We'd have meals at regular times and I was going to school. There was no school uniform, but it was a very positive place for me to go and mm-hmm. I felt cared about, I felt safe. It just brought me out of that environment and into somewhere new where I felt I could fit in and start again. Great. And what supports do you have in place now? Yeah, so I have my family. I have um, an old friend, a youth worker who I talk to all the time, um, and then my friends as well. And so I'm also going to therapy as well, which helps me a lot too. Great. And for you then, I believe you're also, you're volunteering as well. Now tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, so I volunteered with many different youth groups. Um, I volunteered with Spunout.ie Action Panel, Mm -hmm. which is an amazing place for young people who are struggling. And there's lots of different advice online. It's called Spunout.ie. And it ranges from employment to life support, Mm -hmm. um, helping with people who are self-harming and suicidal. And then into how to deal with tax and what's going on for you at school. And it's just an amazing place for people dealing with different things. And and in that day-to-day work um, as a volunteer, like what have you noticed about the, the numbers of young people self-harming and I suppose like even the possible causes for it? Mm-hmm. I suppose with the numbers of people, it's hard to see if it's changed because mm-hmm. of reports because most of the time it only comes out that somebody is self-harming if they need to go to hospital. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the times that isn't the case. So it's... People may be doing it without other people being aware. So the numbers aren't exactly precise. Um, I do think now for young people, though, it's very difficult growing up where there's loads of social media. You have different videos being produced, different kind of... They want a certain amount of likes, a certain amount of popularity with Instagram and how people look. There's a lot of different thoughts that young people have and different anxieties and wanting to fit in and be shown that they're going out with friends mm-hmm. and have people commenting on their photos. And I think it adds so much pressure to them, mm-hmm. as well as what they're already facing in their home life and in school life. So it's a very different time and it's very difficult for them, I think. And now, years on, like, have you ever revisited uh, the topic uh, of self-harm with your with your own mum? Like, have you did you talk to her about the full extent of it? Were you able to have those conversations? Because, you know, even for her be able to speak to you about it as well. I'm, I'm sure like it's such a delicate and sensitive topic, but such an important conversation mm-hmm. to have. Yeah, we definitely talk about it more. And she's read a few of my articles that I've written, mm-hmm. um, especially after the suicide attempt that I had in 2018. So after that, then I kind of started opening up to her more and trying to talk to her about different things. Then. Like, I suppose how... How did it impact on your mum when, when that happened? Like, was, was that a moment where she realised just how serious it was? Yeah, I think so. So the night that it happened, to her I appeared absolutely fine. I asked her if I could have pasta and cheese before I went to bed. And I'd even gone out for a cycle that night. So she found me unconscious the next morning. And I think then 
it kind of hit her how much I could put a wall up, I suppose, mm-hmm. and block people out from seeing my emotions and how much was going on for me in the background that nobody knew about. Mm-hmm. And it definitely encouraged her to kind of ask me more if I was OK and try and get more out of me then. I mean, it, it's so very brave of you to come on and, and share this story. And I'm sure there's there's lots of people listening that, you know, are either in a similar situation or perhaps maybe a parent or somebody close to someone that's currently in a similar situation. Like, how can somebody help if somebody is self-harming or is going down that route? Mm -hmm. Find support. Like, as a parent, if you do think that your child is going down that route or have found out that your child is going down that route, get support for yourself as well. Mm -hmm. Don't just hold it in on yourself and don't... You both need support. It's not just a child that needs support. And make sure as well then that you're there for the child, that the child knows that you're there and can come to you at any stage no matter what it is, how big or small it is, that they can come and talk to you no matter when. Cleana, thank you so much for coming in and sharing your story. And it's great that you're doing well and feeling well now as well. And I wish you all the best. If you or anyone you know has been affected by anything we've been discussing, you will find 24-hour help with the Samaritans or Pieda.ie details or on rte.ie forward slash support. Or you can call Pieda's crisis helpline 1800 247 247. Now coming up, we'll talk to an expert about the different types of self-harm, why it's on the increase and how to help. Supercharged with Ali Geary on RTE Radio 1. Welcome back. If you've joined us, just to warn you, we are dealing with the sensitive topic of self-harm this evening with possible references to suicide. Now, some of you have been getting in touch, sharing your experiences. Hi, Anna. I replied to your message box about self-harming as a teen. I started self-harming probably when I was 12 years old. It was quite continuous throughout secondary school. It took needing a proper counsellor and talking through my feelings to actually learn how to cope better with emotional pain that I was carrying around. I feel like I used to self-harm as a way of letting that emotional pain out because I felt better if I could see a physical mark on my body to show why I was in pain and I hadn't self-harmed in a very long time and during lockdown I did relapse again but I found a very good counsellor who I was able to speak to on WhatsApp and I found that really really helpful and she helped me learn better techniques for coping and for distraction techniques to avoid self-harming and I definitely think the key was speaking to somebody and not being ashamed to admit that there was an issue because it definitely helped me. for trusting us and for sharing your stories and if anybody wants to get in touch you can text us on 51551 or email us supercharged at rte.ie Now Dr Martin O'Sullivan child and adolescent psychiatrist at CHI in Temple Street joins me now to talk about this sensitive, delicate but important subject. Martin thank you for joining us in Supercharged. Pleasure. I think let's just jump straight into this what is actually defined as self-harm? Well, self-harm is um, any behaviour where somebody deliberately injures or harms themselves on purpose. 
and it can have different forms. Um, the common ones that we're aware of are cutting or scratching oneself, mm-hmm. deliberate self-poisoning, taking medications um, or taking an overdose of a different kind. Um, but it's any, any kind of behaviour where the intention is to do harm to the self. And things like excessive exercise, binge eating, can they yeah. also be classed I mean, as yes, at, at the I mean, they're certainly, um, if, if it's an intentional uh, self-harm, then it's deliberate mm-hmm. self-harm. But I mean, some of those behaviours are more kind of addictive behaviours, mm-hmm. which are not intentionally harming yeah. oneself. Uh, so deliberate self-harm is really where you're actually... The focus is on yourself and you are actively trying to harm yourself. Like at the start of the year, we heard about the huge, huge increases in self-harm, particularly among, among young people. Like, What has your experience been? Um, I think that's right, Anna. The, the, um, the COVID experience was remarkable for those of us who are working in the mental health field. Um, we just saw a tsunami of new cases after the first lockdown opened up. And I, I wasn't working in Temple Street then, I was working in a community service in Blanchettstown. And I remember week after week, um, huge numbers of cases being, being referred to us, much more than we were designed to cope with. And like what age groups are presenting with self-harm well, most regularly? At, at the, in, in that wave, which was really interesting, it, we found it was predominantly young girls who were presenting. And in that wave, 13 and 14-year-olds for some reason, those girls who were at the end of the primary school cycle and who were transitioning into secondary school, that whole transition process, the closure of primary school and the successful move to the mm-hmm. secondary school was completely disrupted by the lockdown. And why else would, I suppose, do you think that we were seeing such an increase and, and, and are continuing to see that increase? Well, I mean, the example, you know, that Cleona, you know, mm-hmm. I have to really admire the courage of young people who come forward, Absolutely. you know, and tell their story. But you can, she gives a beautiful account of people's experience, you know, that it's an emotional, they're, they're experiencing difficult emotions that they're finding it, um, you know, it's difficult to deal with. And that the self-harm that she um, got into was a desire to release the emotions and free her from this difficult experience. And, and as is common with, you know, in, in all families, I think, communication is never perfect. And it's difficult to let other people in the family know if you're, if you're struggling. And, you know, in the, she gave a beautiful example of having, wanting, having to text her mum rather than yeah. tell her directly. And again, that's, that's so common. Uh, you know, and I know a, like a lot of people are talking about, you know, smartphones now and the world of social media and the pressures that existed. Like, like how can younger people will cope with all of that? Because yeah, smartphones I, aren't going away. Yeah. I, I, look, I don't I don't know. You know, I, mm-hmm. you know, I remember a period when there were no smartphones. Yeah, so I, I um, do too. <laughs> <laughs> but look, that's an incredibly interesting question. And, and I'm, I'm not the right person to mm. ask about smartphones. But I do know that. In the states where they've studied this very closely, that self-harm um, behavior among younger children, uh, sort of older 
children and younger adolescents increased significantly when the smartphone became readily mm -hmm. available. And it, that hasn't changed. Mm -hmm. So there's no question that vulnerable young people are very vulnerable to the kinds of social communications that go on yeah. through the smartphone. Of course, because they have access to things now and they have access yeah. to videos and there's yeah. there's lots of things, you know, that they may be privy to that without a phone they mightn't. So I suppose it's just for parents and guardians to be aware of that and keeping a close eye. But I suppose moving on from that, like we've been hearing a lot recently about waiting lists and, and difficulties accessing child and adolescent mental health services. Like what are the implications of this and the levels of distress and self-harm that you're seeing? Oh, look, I mean, there's no question that as a country, Ireland needs to take mental health more seriously. I mean, we don't, I mean, this is a tough subject to address because while mental health is in the news a lot, what isn't in the news are solutions uh, for dealing with it. Yeah. And, you know, just very um, basic figures. I mean, we spent, or our health service spends only something like 6 or 7% on mental health. The UK spends 13%. Somewhere like Australia, I'm told, spends up to 20% in different states. So they're clearly prioritising mental health more than we are. And in the money that we give to mental health, we give the vast majority of it to adult mental health mm -hmm. services. So child mental health services are very much... A, a Cinderella service, yeah. unfortunately. So it, there's a massive need to increase the funding in this area and, and Absolutely. quickly. Absolutely. Yes, and it's a political issue. I mean, I'm, I'm, I, I have very little interest in politics myself, but I have to say it's a political issue. I mean, it needs a political solution. Yeah. It, but needs it should be one that they're all aligned in as well because this is something that affects yeah. everybody. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, again, it, it's calling for the necessary things to and, be put in place. And the key issue is that in, in young people's lives, mental health burden is the significant burden. Uh, and that's borne out that this is the biggest issue for young uh, for adolescents and young adults. Mental health burden is the biggest thing holding them back. Well, speaking of that then, because... For a lot of people, when they think of self-harm, like what can it indicate, you know, and is, is it always a warning sign of more serious mental health issues? Well, um, no, it's not always a warning sign. And, and of course, most people's journey through self-harm is that they, they come out the other end successfully. Um, often um, we see a lot of these behaviours in adolescence and they don't continue into adulthood, I would say, in the majority of cases. Mm -hmm. But it is important because it can be a herald of difficult things, you know, down, um, you know, downstream, if you like. So we take we always take it seriously because we we need to do our screening and and Temple Street, where I work, is the busiest hub for child mental health um, acute uh, evaluations in Ireland, but. We still have to give a positive message as well because most people will recover eventually. Most people will do well. Um, but the, the families do need to, I think, use the opportunity that comes about when like a crisis is a crisis, but it's also an opportunity and families need to use that opportunity. And sometimes the young person by their behaviour is signalling that there's something wrong, something wrong in their life or something wrong in the life of the family or in, in you know, the, the wider situation, maybe in school. And like what underlying issues is it mostly associated with? And like, I suppose there are concerns as well that it might lead to things like suicide attempts. 
Yeah, it is. I mean, it's. I suppose fundamentally, it's about it. It's well about one's relationship with oneself. I mean, ultimately, if you're harming yourself, you your relationship with yourself is difficult at that mm-hmm. moment. But it, but it's also to do with frustration and probably having unsolvable situations that you're trying to deal with. And sometimes that's to do with peer pressure. Sometimes it's to do just with family factors, pressures at home that are really unsolvable for the young yeah. person. And or, and sometimes, as you say, the social media pressure and a lot of young people increasingly having problems with how they look. And, and uh, you know, and, and again, that's another post-COVID phenomenon. Yeah. Before we do get to those coping methods, work, which are extremely important, there is a message in here from a parent. It says, like, what is the advice for parents that, you know, find themselves in this situation or should ever find themselves in this situation with a child? Like, what, what do they do? Um, you know, I think the, the very first thing I would say to parents is don't panic. Um Occasionally, I see parents who overreact to that first presentation, you know, that first text message, that first, mom, there's something I need to tell you. Mm-hmm. And parents sometimes in fear and in worry can sometimes overreact, say the wrong thing and kind of, to some extent, um, pour fuel on the fire. But I would say don't panic. I mean, just take a beat. There are very few situations where you have to act in the next five minutes. Mm-hmm. Take a beat, give, compose yourself. And above all, I think, um, try to validate what your um, you know, son or daughter is going through. Try to validate that. Try to understand what's behind their emotion. And, and above all, try to say, look, I, I understand that you're feeling angry, sad, upset, whatever it is. And, and start with that with that approach. And Martin, what if it's a situation where your child hasn't come to you to tell you this, but you haven't like a strong inclination that it's happening? How do you instigate that conversation? Yeah, that's that's a tricky situation. Um, and sometimes you have to rely on others. I mean, sometimes the, the young person um, has a great relationship with a family member with an aunt or an uncle. I think an aunt was mentioned mm-hmm. in Cleona's story. Sometimes it's with a best friend. Sometimes it's with the parent of somebody, you know, of a friend. Um, so sometimes you're not the be- as the parent, you're not the best person to get the information. Um, Just once they can confide in once somebody. Once they can confide in someone, yeah. And there is a voice note actually after coming here, so we might play this. A friend struggled this way, couldn't verbalise how they were struggling, but were hurting themselves to get rid of pain inside their head with physical pain. On one particular instance, they caused such damage to their wrist, they were brought to the doctors. Such a difficult situation to be in, Martin. Like, where is people's first port of call? Like, is it the GPs? Um, well, the GPs are definitely significant gatekeepers in you know in our health system, um, but I, I know that it's not always easy to get GP appointments either. I, and I, also, I think, like, can I ask as well from a GP perspective, like, have they the skills equipped to deal with something? Yeah, like this? no, I think I would be confident that GPs have the skills certainly mm-hmm. to 
to assess whether someone is um, at significant risk okay. right now. Mm-hmm. I mean, GPs have those skills. I mean, I, I'm such very, a difficult conversation it, and situation it, it to is, be in. It is, um, and so I think GPs, are school uh, counselors, guidance counselors, are very important as well, and then youth club leaders and what. Uh, school, sports coaches and that are becoming more and more aware, I think, of, of mental health as an issue, you know, among young sports um, clubs and that. And you mentioned coping met- me- methods earlier on. Like what are the coping methods that people with an urge to self-harm can use to potentially avoid that harmful behaviour? Well, when someone comes into Temple Street, um when they're being discharged from the hospital, you know, one of the team will sit down with them and go through safety planning with them. And that safety planning will look at the warning signs that that were there before they self-harmed, before they came into the hospital. And then we'll, we'll think about, okay, so what are the warning signs so that when they leave the hospital, they kind of understand what are the things that tell me that this could happen again? Mm-hmm. And then what, what, what coping strategies are there? What can I do? Um, that can help and that could be you know music I listen to it could be sport or vigorous exercise it could be reaching out to friends reaching out to family members I saw things um, like the the rubber band in the wrist or ice yeah, cubes and things. They yeah they talk, they talk about sensory I mean because certainly people who cut repeatedly there's a there's a sensory element to that which okay. is quite successful in redu- you know changing their mood state so you try to re- Replace it with something that's vigorous as well. So holding an ice cube in your hand is one method. Snapping an um, elastic band against your wrist vigorously, again. Uh, t- they say take a cold bath, take a cold shower, something like that that's vigorous and is a bit of a shock to the system can can kind of uh, reset you know, the, the mental state. What is the likelihood that this problem will follow people into adulthood if it's not addressed when they're younger? Um, I, I, I think, well, it, it's, it's possible, of course, and, and um, quite a lot of people with uh, problems, mental health problems in adulthood had the first signs of that in um, adolescence. So it's possible for some young people who have problems in adolescence, they will continue to have problems into adulthood. But at the same time, a lot of people, I mean, the peak age of self-harm is in early adolescence across the life cycle. So a lot of people who are self-harming, who are 13 and 14, they will not be self-harming when they're in their 20s. Just to finish on this, what happens next after a person, you know, comes to the emergency department or their GP who has been self-harming and you know what's what's the next what's the next step then? Well, I mean that that's an interesting question. Uh, it certainly occupies our thoughts quite a lot mm-hmm. when, when we're in, in hospital-based service. We, I mean, we do refer those who look like they're at risk of moderate to severe mental health difficulties. We do refer those to community calm services, although th- those services are significantly stretched at the yeah, moment. Yeah, we've heard that recently in the news. Um, we do mention Pieta House, which is a fantastic counselling charity, and you know a lot of families can self-refer those there. And there are also multi- multiple other counsellors and psychotherapists and psychologists in public practice and in private practice, you know, across our communities that people can go to. And 
this is such a, a serious topic and I'm I'm so glad that we're talking about it in Supercharged mm. because we need to mm. talk about it. Mm-hmm. But for people, just to leave them with, with a message of hope, you know, for, for someone that might be in this circumstance or someone that has a loved one that is facing this, what would you say to them, Martin? Yeah, I, I would say, first of all, I mean, you know, it, it is a crisis, but it's also an opportunity. Often um, self-harm is a bit of a canary in the mind. You know, it's a sort of a sign that things were not quite right. And it's an opportunity for people to try and put things right. I mean, I, I listened to someone like Cleona at the start of the program, and she's in there now helping young people with the spun out um, you know, organization. And I often find that that young people who go through moments like this, they come out the other end, often better human beings and, and very inclined to help others who are in the same situation that they were in once. Dr. Martin O'Sullivan, thank you so much okay. for taking the time to be with us. And to reiterate, if you've been affected by anything that you've heard or want to seek more information, you can find 24-hour help with the Samaritans or Pieta.ie. Details on rte.ie forward slash support or you can call Pieta's crisis helpline on 1800 247 247. Now, it is Tinnitus Awareness Week next week. More on that in a few minutes. Supercharged with Ali Geary on RTE Radio 1. Get myself a little bit of a jingle there. I'm delighted with myself. Yes, it is my fitness tip of the week. Now, last week, I challenged you to do your squats while boiling the kettle. And some of you have been getting in touch and very impressed that you're still keeping it going this week. But... My fitness tip this week is a little bit different. That for a lot of people, when they think of fitness, they think it has to be boring, it has to be a chore. It's like, ugh, I've got to do it. But everybody loves dancing. Whether you're a good dancer or a bad dancer, dancing is fun, it's enjoyable, it boosts your mood. But dancing is also fitness. And I was actually filming a TV show last night and we were dancing. All ages out in the dance floor. Waltzing, jiving, line dancing. And it just got me thinking, if you were to take your pulse before you started dancing and pick your favourite high tempo song and you dance around your kitchen for that three or three and a half minutes whatever the duration of the song is don't stop and take your pulse again at the very end of it I can guarantee you your pulse will now have elevated because that's what fitness is about it's about simply moving your body elevating your heart rate getting the blood flowing through your body and it's good for you so my challenge to you this week is to simply dance you don't do any other form of fitness just dance around your kitchen Even if it's badly, who cares? Nobody's going to see you. Let me know how you get on and if you're prepared to dance in a good way or a bad way. 51551 or get in touch with me as well on Instagram. Do it for a week. Guarantee you're going to feel better. It's Anna's fitness tip for the week. Now that's food for thought. Next week is Tinnitus Awareness Week and tinnitus is actually a condition that affects about one in seven people and it can be extremely debilitating for those that suffer from it. So joining me now to give us both information and advice are Professor John Fenton, Consultant ENT Surgeon at Bon Secours Limerick and Kathleen Daffy, Community Resource Officer at Chime, the National Charity for Deafness and Hearing Loss. You're both very welcome to Supercharged. I suppose first to you, um, John, what is tinnitus for people that mightn't know? Uh, thank you. Um, tinnitus is any noise in the head, essentially. Um, from an ENT point of view, we look at it from a pulsing. Is it like your heart or is it non-pulsing? And the non-pulsing can vary from anything from a seashell to a motorbike. 
uh, can be one ear or either or the other ear. Mm-hmm. And it, look, what does it sound like? Because lots of people hear different sounds. Well, as I said, it's is it pulsing? From our point of view, is it pulsing? Is it like your heart? Mm-hmm. And in the vast majority of cases, it is your heart. Um, it can be unusual causes that pulsate, and that's what we have to exclude when we see a patient with pulsing. The more common tinnitus is um, often likened to a seashell, listening to a seashell. Um, the um, it can be a motorbike, it can be a tick, it can be anything. I mean, yeah, I've heard people my, say it's like a buzzing noise in their ear. A buzzing, too. yeah, a ringing. My my fellow Kerryman, a, a Listowel poet, John McAuliffe, wrote a poem called Tinnitus, and he said it's a tideless sea that won't go away. Um, it's uh, it's usually the the patient is the only one who can hear it, and tinnitus has been called the, the lonely struggle. So they're the only ones who can hear it. Mm-hmm. Like what, um, what are the possible triggers or, or causes of tinnitus? Um, anything, any insult to the brain, the ear, the neck or the jaw can give you tinnitus. So you, you, you name it, it can happen, it can cause it. So anything from children, say, with wax to adults with noise exposure or anything else you can think of, any infection. Mm-hmm. I, uh, I read somewhere before as well um, that emotional trauma can be a trigger. I've rarely seen, uh, okay, I've rarely seen stress as a cause of tinnitus, but mm-hmm. I've often seen it as an aggravator of tinnitus. Okay. Uh, the connection could be through the jaw joint where you've, the jaw joint is in tension, you get tension headaches, and the jaw itself can cause tinnitus. That's a likely cause. Um, I, I tend to say to people, we've got good news and bad news, that it's, as you just said, it's a, a seventh of people, but actually up to a third can experience long-term really? tinnitus at some stage. And at any one time, 5% of people can have tinnitus. So it's pretty common. It's rarely anything sinister or worrisome. It can go away as easily as it came. And um, it's usually at its worst when it comes on. Um, The longer you have it, you might get used to it, or it does does tend to fade away. Now, people have been messaging in, and they're saying it's incredibly frustrating and debilitating in terms of the impact that it's having in their lives. Can you just outline to some people that may never have experienced tinnitus the type of impact that it can actually have on people? Well, the, the full spectrum of, of emotion, um, we can start off by just the simple question is sleep. Does it disturb your sleep? Does it stop you getting to sleep? Does it stop you getting back to sleep if you awaken during sleep? And that in itself is, is a, is, can be horrific. Mm-hmm. If you're not sleeping, the next day is even worse. And then the stress of not getting sleep makes you worse the following night. So it, it actually tinnitus begets tinnitus. Mm-hmm. Um, we judge it from anxiety and, and I see your earlier uh, feature was suicide that um, there have been patients who would be considered suicidal from their tinnitus. Okay. So what it's the full what can people do or like, what can be done to help it? That's, I've given you the good news. The bad news is that we don't actually know the physical reason that it happens or you know, what the pathophysiology um, and as of yet there is no known cure. What we do is try to make it tolerable for the patient, and uh, the first step in my management is tinnitus. Is first of all to exclude any significant or worrisome condition that might cause might cause further problems. But if all is clear, um, tinnitus retraining would be our first step in the management. And I know my colleague uh, Kathleen is on to speak about mm-hmm. that. Uh, we did get a question in here, John, about like what is the link between tinnitus and menopause? A few people actually have been saying that. Once they entered into menopause, they actually developed tinnitus. Uh, we can link tinnitus to anything. 
okay. and everything. We can link it to COVID. We can link it to to COVID vaccination. We can link it to menopause. Uh, my own feeling is that is it's a systemic problem, and therefore anything that disrupts the body can lead to tinnitus, but but particularly stress. Mm-hmm. Like I don't know of any hormonal connection or lack of hormonal connection to yeah, menopause. I don't know if that's a relief for people to hear or not, because everyone, as you said, is is looking for reasons behind it. Kathleen, I'm going to come to you for a second as a cognitive yeah. behavioural therapist, like. How do you help people with tinnitus? Because they're obviously, they're coming to you, you know, frustrated, upset, just, you know, unsure of where to go and what to do next. Yes, well, firstly, I suppose I'm not a CBT therapist. Um, Chimes Tinnitus Advisors would have a CBT approach to tinnitus. So that's my training in relation to a CBT approach to tinnitus management. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, somebody coming to me, um, I suppose the first question that I would ask is, have they been to their GP? Have they been assessed by an ENT specialist? Mm-hmm. And um, if they've been to an ENT specialist, if they have a clear MRI scan, if there is, you know, regardless of the cause of their tinnitus, so sometimes it is something quite sinister and sometimes not so much Um, but regardless of the trigger for the onset of their tinnitus we can support them here you know tinnitus as you've mentioned before it's not a psychological condition but it can have a huge psychological impact on somebody so it's all about learning to manage it and for me the first step in that regard is understanding it so that would be a big step in relation to my initial um, assessment with somebody would be to assess their tinnitus and tinnitus isn't assessed on the basis of how loud it is. Um, It's assessed on the basis of how it impacts you. So you could have two people describing their tinnitus as being exactly the same sound, but one might um, habituate quite quickly to it and another person might find it absolutely very debilitating to deal with. So that would be the first step. And then, you know, explaining what tinnitus is and... um, what exacerbates it, you know, is is the first step in understanding management of it. And that would be where Chime's support comes in, is um, supporting somebody along that journey in getting to the point of habituation or getting to the point of their tinnitus being manageable. And for people listening that are just desperate for any tips or any little takeaways that they can do to alleviate right now this evening without, you know, going to anybody, is there anything that you can say to them? Absolutely. I mean, my focus would be, you know, like Professor Fenton said, there's no quick fix, there's no cure, um, but it certainly can be managed effectively. And, you know... Chime service is we're a not-for-profit organisation, a registered charity. Um, anybody can can be referred by their GP, their ENT specialist, or they can self-refer to Chime service. You know, we offer free hearing assessment with our audiology team to come in if they have any concerns about their hearing. They can have their hearing assessed and then they can be referred on to um, a tinnitus advisor in their area who will support them, you know, one-to-one through this process um, to get them to the point of management of their tinnitus. That's great. Thank you very much to Professor John Fenton and Kathleen Daffy. Now, you'll find details of some of the free webinars that Chime are hosting this week on chime.ie for people with tinnitus, including webinars on cognitive behavioural therapy, sleep and stress. All the details are on chime.ie forward slash events. 
Health writer Danielle Byrne is currently sitting in front of me, which means it is time to look at some of the health stories making the news this this week. This week, this week, I'm delighted to have you back in studio, Danielle. I suppose there's a lot of people out there who suffer with migraine, and there's a new migraine drug that may be coming. I believe. Tell us. Yeah, more. I mean, migraine is a huge, huge problem. Mm-hmm. I personally don't suffer with it, but if I, I know lots of people who do, and it just sounds so debilitating and distressing. And we know that it affects like more than one billion people globally, and that means up to half a million people in Ireland suffer with migraine that obviously has huge knock-on effects even just for productivity for the whole of society Mm. it makes sense to have treatments that work so we are beginning to see more effective treatments and this week we saw that another drug is set to get approval from the FDA in the US so it's called Zavegipant in case you don't even even try and spell it (laughs) so it's a type of migraine medication known as a G-pant so this one works um, on the CGRP receptors so it actually blocks the attack while it's happening and it's a nasal spray so we do have some nasal sprays for, for migraine mm-hmm. but this that means it works really quickly within about 15 minutes it's really good for people who get woken up by attacks like they don't get any warning so also it's good for people who get nausea as part of their migraine and find it hard to take medications when that's happening so obviously the more treatments the better given that we know that headache and migraine account for up to 1 in 40, some people say even 1 in 20 emergency department presentations. So it makes sense, doesn't it? And for a lot of people, is is it easily attainable? You know, is it something that they'll be able to to get soon? Well, it's it's imminent. So obviously we we would hope to Because I know there's lots of people asking that very question right now. But it's awaiting FDA approval. But I think that that should happen quite quickly Mm -hmm. and then we'll see it over here. Yeah. And I suppose that's good news for lots of people. And there's another story that I really liked as well, but why do we stretch when we yawn? And we all do it. And yeah. it was only I was very conscious when I saw the story come up. I was like, oh yeah, I definitely stretch yeah, when I yawn. Yeah, and I, me too. And I, I was actually kind of inspired. I saw a tweet or a comment somewhere in, on the interweb that if you don't say big stretch when a dog or a baby stretches, you are a psychopath. That's that's a fact. So <laughs> I'll I've, take I've, your word for that. I found out during the week that the act of involuntary stretching while yawning, they actually call it pandiculation in humans. So we're all pandiculating right now. But we see it in all species. And um, it's tough that this stretching and yawning it actually stems from what they call post-basking risk assessment so we see it in babies as young as 12 weeks and then it actually stays with you for life you always do it so um, stretching after sleeping I really want to do it now as I know that's how I kind of feel I feel the need to do it yeah stretching after sleeping is a way to get your muscles moving again it gets rid of fluid accumulated after lying down but it's also getting us into a state of readiness so we can be ready for any potential danger also we know that it just feels good there's a lovely release that comes Mm. from that extra big stretch Stretch. Yeah, so it's actually good for your body so your body makes sure that it feels good. You get that little shot of dopamine every time you do it. So I know the whole, every all the listeners and are doing it right dopamine's the happiness now. hormone so we yeah. all should be stretching when yeah. we're yawning then. Okay, brilliant. Now, suppose there has been a connection between whiskey drinking, I believe, and, and looking younger. Yeah. I'm intrigued. I know, right. Well, not, I wanted to cover this because I think it's one of those things where people will see the headline and <laughs> clickbait. Is that yes, what you're telling me? I think okay. so. And it's going to be one of those things where you, to you need to read the story. But um, it was a study into the use of pot ale. So it's one of the residues, one of the the byproducts of the whiskey making process. It's usually used for animal feed. But a company in Scotland um, were able to show that it actually provides antioxidant benefits in skincare. You know, the antioxidants, mm-hmm. they're the things that oh, are, we all are love magic. Them. Yes. Yeah. And they're now looking to put all these 
these nutrients from the whiskey into skincare. So they were inspired by this Japanese study back in the 70s that found that the, the sake fermentation process was very beneficial for the skin. So again, it's just not quite drinking whiskey to look younger in case anyone got <laughs> carried away reading the headline. <laughs> it's like you might be drinking it and other people might look younger, but yeah. not necessarily the same thing. Okay, staying with alcohol for a second. During the week, Irish researchers have found that binge drinking could be even worse for us than we already know. Yeah, so it's kind of like tell us something we don't know, but mm-hmm. it's even more evidence. Um, so the researchers down at the APC in University College Cork, we, we've mentioned them before. Yeah, they do they're brilliant e- work. Yeah, they? they're experts in the microbiome. And as I've explained on this show before, that it's that's the whole host of tiny, tiny microbes that live in your gut. And it's, it's linked to so many different health problems. So they discovered as part of this study that young binge drinkers showed alterations in their gut microbiome that could be linked to a poor ability to recognise emotions and even their cravings to consume alcohol. And that's long before addiction even kicks in. So it was over 70 people they looked at, young people, and they found evidence of these certain microbiome species that are linked with emotional processing and impulsivity. Now, I mean, you don't need a study to tell you're impulsive when you drink alcohol, but it's even more evidence that the gut microbiome actually regulates brain Mm. function functioning and emotional functioning and obviously even more evidence that binge drinking not a great idea and another reminder to look after our gut microbiome and Mm. most likely not with alcohol it's not going to be good for us tell us about how planting trees could save more lives yeah so this one is kind of depressing I I won't even sugarcoat it maybe I should have skipped this one well I found it intriguing in the context of you know we've seen these higher temperatures um, and the heat waves you know Europe had like a record breaking heat wave last summer and um, this study found that up to one third of the premature deaths that were attributable attributable to all these higher temperatures in European cities during the summer of 2015, they could have been prevented by increasing urban tree cover. So planting more trees, if they got up to 30% tree cover, then that would have brought down the average air temperature down by 0.4 of a degree. So a pretty big yeah, difference. Quite yeah, quite significant. And this is the kind of research that will help cities adapt as we tackle these increasing temperatures. So it is a good finding, but like I said, it's ultimately kind of depressing that we even need to think this way. Plus the average tree cover, I realised, in European cities is actually only about 15%. You're talking about doubling the number of trees, so it, it sounds a bit ambitious. Yeah. And when we think about Dublin, it's not very green, is it? Um, I actually tried to find an up-to-date figure and I'd feel free to be corrected on this. One from a couple of years ago suggested Dublin only had about 10% tree cover. So it's really something for us to bear in mind. more green in there. Yeah, and that like, I mean, it makes sense anyway, but just this particular finding was was pretty, uh, like I said, um, upsetting. Definitely (laughs) something we're going to have to come back to here to see if there's any follow-up on that. And lastly, TikTok. Okay, the health myths continue on TikTok. I am here to wage my war again against the TikTok health myths. Um, This one I came across, and I I thought I was seeing things, but it's it's actually a supplement. In fairness, okay, so we drinking chlorophyll has become a bit of a a trend on TikTok, and it's there's a sentence I never thought anyone would say live on radio. But chlorophyll, okay, so junior search science. We're Mm -hmm. all going to get the flashbacks now. So it's the pigment that gives plants their green colour. It's also part of the process that helps plants make their food through photosynthesis. Mm -hmm. Um, But this trend emerged on TikTok where influencers, uh, who else, were drinking drops of liquid chlorophyll in water. But they said said that within a week, it was magic. Their complexions would be clear. Their tummies would be less bloated. They wouldn't even have body odour anymore, Anna. So this was going to be magic. People Um, can't see my facial expressions right now, but I'm not buying it. Yeah, no, you're, you're, 
you're less influenced. So uh, while they say that it does all these magical things, the science is obviously very, very shaky. I'm not surprising you when I say that. So obviously the chlorophyll supplement that you can actually buy, but it's it's semi-synthetic. Like the minute you take real chlorophyll from plants, it starts breaking down very quickly. It's not very stable. So they have to put in another compound to stabilise it. So it's it's not even real chlorophyll. Um, The other thing is that I couldn't find any good quality evidence. There's actually not even much evidence at all. There's not much in the way of studies. So it seems to be one of those things, again, that gained traction on TikTok and we see, you know, Instagram reels about it. But like also supplements are totally unregulated market. Like it's it's yeah. something that we, we just don't have. And there are far safer on. ways to help clear your complexion and help keep your tummy less bloated and help with body odour. I think than it could just be the water in, in that sense, just drink the water without minus the chlorophyll. Yeah, yeah. And it's very, very simple. Yeah, I think we'll have to leave it there. I'm a bit shook after hearing that one. Danielle Barron, health writer, thank you so much for coming into studio to chat with those very interesting and some disturbing health stories. Now, on our show this evening, I know we've been covering some very sensitive topics. If you've been affected by anything on the show, you can visit pieta.ie or Samarathons. Or for more info on Tinnitus Awareness Week, you can go to chime.ie. You can listen back to this show at rt.ie forward slash supercharged or on the Radio Player app or wherever you get your podcasts. A huge thanks to all of my guests this evening and thank you for all of you for your questions and for the courage to send in your voice notes as well. Thank you to my brilliant production team, John, Louise, Mahi and Jamie on sound. You can get in touch as always on email supercharged at rte.ie and you can always reach out to me as well on Instagram at Anna G. Cork. But until next Sunday evening, keep talking to each other, keep listening to each other and please keep minding each other. Supercharged with Anna Geary is an Ojo production for RTE Radio 1.